This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. So we are continuing our Architecture and series and exploring the tech industry again. And before you roll your eyes at me, what I ultimately hope that our listeners get out of these conversations is is twofold. One, that the path for architects within technology is pretty limitless and doesn't stop with just UX. And I would argue that the path for architects within other industries are also pretty limitless um, and there's greater opportunity out there if you explore. And two, specifically with Kanoa and our next guest, Federico, that there are opportunities to rethink design within the built environment and how we have always done things. What I will say about our guest today, Federico, is that he has been name dropped on our podcast a few times and he has made his way through different career pivot points where he went from architecture into net technology, kind of looking at both sides of those career paths and how they interact and merge. And he has taken what he's learned and shifted um, away from being in what he describes as disrupting the industry to taking ownership of his projects to be a force of change in the work that he's creating. So we're excited to learn more about the work that he's doing now and some of his career steps forward into this point. So Federico, welcome to the show. We're going to pass it off to you to introduce yourself. Well, thank you to the both of you for having me. That's a Pretty flattering introduction. I'm super happy to be here. The the short version of my introduction is I'm I'm Federico. I'm an architect by training. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Canoa, uh, which we'll sort of dive into, I'm sure, later on. It's funny, you guys describe my career as a sort of series of like pivots and shifts. I, I see it quite linearly looking back, <laughs> which maybe is part of the reason what makes me uh makes, I think, my story uh, a little bit different. But anywho, um, very happy to be here uh, and sort of dive into all of this with, with the both of you. I think that the reason I see it as pivots is just that you seemed attracted towards career steps that were kind of outside the norm, maybe for how a lot of architects were practicing 10 years ago. And I would say that you took risks within the steps that you took, even if they were linear and aligned to the profession in some way. Maybe we should talk about a couple of those steps. So first starting off at shop and then jumping into uh, your next, let's say, jump, not pivot. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I started my uh, career at Shop Architects. Um, I graduated in 2004 from uh, Parsons with my Master of Architecture. At the time, Corey and Bill uh, Sharpless were both professors um, at Parsons. There was a a wonderful community of of 
uh, I would call sort of like early career practitioners um, uh, at, at Farsis at the time. And I got to take a couple of their courses and then eventually sort of join, join the company. So I started working with them in my, in my last year, uh, throughout that last year, oddly enough, uh, building a lot of the furniture in their office. And now I'm in, I'm back in furniture again. So I started there and, you know, saw um, from 2004 through 2008 uh, at the at the first crash, first sort of big uh, recession in, in in my career that I've seen. There was this explosion of work, especially in New York, and 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 shop really got to ride that wave. A lot of that was in in condo work, in in, in uh, high end residential. Uh, and then expanded into other things, of course, like institutional and even work with the city with the East River. So I got you know to to experience a lot of that early on. it was it was it was pretty amazing. And at the time we we were talking a lot about um, how uh, you know and and I do credit um, you know shop and the partners there for a lot of this talk, but they they were really trying to figure out ways to to change a little bit the the business model. Arguably, they probably didn't um, to a degree. I think they they win a lot of business in the way that they they practice. Um, but they you know they were trying to expand into development. They were trying to expand into construction. And one of the areas we were trying to expand into was was technology. In two thousand and eight, as the crash was be- beginning, if you will, um, a lot of a lot of business for a lot of architects started to go on hold. A lot of people, you know, just a lot of banks, obviously, where most of the money comes in for for development, um, were were uh, were effectively you know stopped in their tracks, and so Dave, which I know you you've had on the podcast before, and Steve and myself who were inside, we 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 decided you know we wanted to take the leap and and um, and jump into you know pure technology consulting at the time. And so we we took it as an opportunity. Uh, we, you know, we used to say that like while the industry was sort of had been like super uh, awash with work and billable hours for a decade, they hadn't really made investments in in modernizing at all. And so we saw that as an opportunity for us to say, okay, while everybody is kind of like slamming the brakes and even going into reverse um can we just you know go full speed ahead as like this little three-person company and so that was that was really our approach from day one is to say can we help people can we help businesses um you know in architecture in design you know use technology better to be able to 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 reinvent themselves to be able to you know, do better work to be able to um you know hire better talent all of these kinds of things and so we were obviously young and super excited and we thought we were going to change the world you know but it it worked uh, convincing enough people to give us small ten thousand dollar contracts was was enough to get us out of the gate and that's you know and that's how how case started we we didn't really see ourselves as um we got this all the time you know a lot of friends and people were like oh you're leaving design you know, how could you leave shop and this and that? And we we always, we, we never saw it that way. We never saw it as leaving design. We saw it as leaving practice, which is different. And it, and it really was this sort of like handheld way or like structured way in which practice is, 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 is you know, culturally and legally meant to, meant to function. And so for us, it was like, look, we... We we even saw it, you know, with with high highly specialized consultants like acousticians or lighting designers or even the engineers, they felt freer than we did, and so we're like, well, we want to do that. <laughs> we want to be able to sell other things um, and do other kind of cool work. And so we we saw actually the removal of the term architect as as kind of a freeing public proposition, if you will. 
you know, most people, when they think about starting something new from an architecture firm, I think the default is let's go start our own firm, not like let's start this specialty service that is actually consulting to architecture firms, which are notoriously known for like not paying consultants. Uh, where does that entre- like historically, where does that entrepreneurial spirit stem from for you? That's a really good question. I, I don't know. I think that I think Dave and I always had this sort of itch. Um, we had we had we there was always something we were kind of plotting. Like even internally at Shop, we had like you know this like design technology group, and like um, even though the company you know by when I started it was small, but by the by the time we left, it was it was probably like just under a hundred people, which which for for Shop at the time was you know enormous. They're not they're much bigger now, but. Um, you know, even within that group, we were like, oh, let's start a technology group and let's start this and let's start that. There was always this, this, Dave was all, this, this amazing person who was like, you know, the first person to kind of drop everything and help people to like, you know, workshop something or, or troubleshoot some software um, or teach people or, or any of that. And so I think a lot of, a lot of the, I think the early uh, spirit of case was to, was to just try to like, cast a wider net, if you will, sort of be bigger in a way, talk to more people, get to work with more amazing people, you know, including shop. And so, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe part of this credit is, is maybe to a degree for our upbringing, both Dave and I, I was born in Latin America. And so I immigrated into this country, Dave, Dave is, um, you know, uh, heritage is he's Cuban American. He's from South Miami. Uh, maybe, maybe as sort of immigrants, we we kind of always felt that like anything was possible, and so like part of our responsibility is to just kind of go out and get it. The sort of like staying in our lane thing was just was not was not our thing, <laughs> in a way. I kind of wonder, like the fact that you both ended up at shop, like does. A culture like shop, and I know maybe we need to separate the culture that is at shop now versus at shop previously, but a culture like shop that is is trying to create innovation, like does that attract people that think like that? Or does it foster people who think like that? Or I don't know, it's kind of like chicken and the egg. What came first? Like how did that how did that produce people who wanted to go out and rethink the industry? It was a really exciting place to be at the time. You know, you looked around and every architect that was doing anything was like this. This was the age of like the the golden age, if you will, of this architect. It's, it's kind of like fiddled or like fizzled away at, at this point. Right. And now it even has, you know, uh, very sort of negative undertones. And, and at the time it was like you looked around and it was it was all very much owned by the, you know, the boomer generation. And so you had a handful of American studios that were smaller, that were younger, that were trying to look at things, I think, in a little bit of a different way and very sort of founded on this idea that that one of their main differentiators was going to be technology, but also this idea that you didn't have to be, um, you didn't have to wait till you were like well into your 60s to be, to you know, to be successful. And so they were trying different things and you got to give them a lot of credit for that. You know, I think Greg and Bill and Corey, all three of them uh, in very different ways, um, you got to give them credit for, for trying lots of different things. And I think attracting a lot of talent that, you know, if you look at it now, even the people who are 
you know, let's say aside from the people who are still there, because they, they still have many people there from, from, from when I was there, but they've spawned a lot of other companies as well, right? Like a lot of people that have left shopped over the years have, have not gone on to do uh, all kinds of amazing things, including in design. So I, I think I think it was a, like a culturally significant moment for sure, and they were really talking about architecture in a in a really different way. And I will give Corey a lot of this 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 credit. Probably above all, they they always talked about architecture as a very valuable thing. Design is a very valuable thing, and never as this sort of like you know thing that has to happen that people shouldn't get paid for. And so they they valued what shop was doing out of the market. It was an expensive practice to work with, um, but but they they did value that. So you know it was refreshing for students to come in here, or young people would come in and say, "Oh wait, what we do is actually a valuable thing," which was not what you would hear even in school. Like I remember, you know, how many professors had told me is like, "Oh, you're gonna be an architect, you know, prepare to be poor." Like, well, I didn't make a lot of money by working at shop, but uh, the thinking, the possibility that design uh, could be reframed in a different way was was very much alive. Um, they even started a couple of other companies, right? They had like development group, they had a construction group. Um, uh, and so there was an entrepreneurial spirit within, within that practice uh, at the time. I'm not sure if those things are still there or not, but, um, you know, but I know that they have a startup now. Um, so, so it's, I think it's, I think it is, it is definitely part of the, of the, the sort of genesis of all of this, if you will, like that, that influence is real. I think a lot of people are interested in, in shop these days for, for a lot of different reasons. But I do remember, you know, being in school and and kind of feeling like like that was like one of the firms, like you said, younger leadership, forward thinking, like like that was one of the firms I think that a lot of my peers were naturally drawn to or even just talked about or knew about because of the things that they were doing differently. I want to dive a little bit back into, so, so, you know, the story is Case obviously got bought by WeWork and Dave ended up kind of on the people ops side of things, which led him to Teal. Where did your journey in WeWork kind of take you and did it have any influence on where you've grown your new company? Of course, um, it, it, it certainly did. Um, I When I joined um, WeWork, I came on to be what at the time was called uh, head of design, uh, working really closely with with Miguel McKelvey, who's um, you know one of the co-founders of the company and the chief creative officer and the and the creative team that that he had set up. It's a wonderful group of of you know designers who are who had made something I think that was like really special, and so my my role really was to help them scale this this really precious thing that they had put together and so we had been helping them from the outside for for quite a bit we had been you know trying to let's say expose them to the way that retailers or hospitality companies worked which was structured fundamentally different than a development company which which is kind of the structure that they had internally um, and so we said, look, if you know development is meant to move slow because these are big and expensive decisions, retail or hospitality, you know, rollout uh, methodology is meant to move fast. And so, you know, installing not just technology but really a whole methodology of work internally and was a big part of that sort of initial effort. And so, my role there as a head of design was to help you know help take this thing, productize it completely restructure and reframe the way in which we did work 
and, you know, and then grow into uh, what we needed to be to make this product better, to be able to build it faster, to be able to guarantee quality control across the globe, not just in a few cities in the U.S., and to, above all, you know, be able to cut costs drastically um, because we were very much still living in the world of you know, traditional uh, retrofits, which were you know, very, very expensive, very sort of like, you know, unique from one building to the next, all of that, you know, which we, we had to figure out a way to build into our design framework as opposed to try to reject it. I think a lot of people, a lot of people try to kind of like, or we like what I look, I like to always call design out uh, change. You're trying to like make this perfect thing and the world is imperfect. So if you try to fight it, you, you'll, you will lose that fight. And so, you know, part of all of this was to create a, a product um, that welcomed change that expected it, you know, and as a result of that, that you're able to, to adjust, uh, able to accept the world in a very happy way, as opposed to in a way that like, you know, that, that ends up uh, requiring thousands of hours of meetings and coordination calls and little details and things that are, that are all in the, in an effort to, 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 in a way, just occlude reality. Like, like we don't need to do that. So we, we, we really try to build a product and, and, and really a team first that would be able to think that way and, and to approach um, our product in a different way. And then, and then, you know, and then, and, you know, and scale. So, so of course, opening build, buildings was the the daily routine, if you will. But we're trying to do it with a with a different thought process. Um, and so there was a little bit of a reeducation. We we went out there and got the best talent that we could. And I think that a lot of people who came through the system, I think, really accept, really like appreciated it. And and you, you see it a lot now. There's a lot of wonderful people that have gone on to. Um, you know, as they continue their careers, they're doing amazing things. And I think taking a lot of the ideas that we had at WeWork uh, and applying them in their specific you know, fields or verticals or companies or wherever, whatever that may be. I think we're interested to know, because like you said, those first folks who like took that step away from traditional practice were kind of on the outside a little bit of the profession. And I think we're starting to see that change, but I'm curious, like those early folks who stepped towards WeWork, like what was it about them or what was it about the culture of the company that really attracted them? What, what are the themes that we could learn from in terms of like creating better cultures, even within architecture? You have to, you have to inspire people um, no matter what. Right. And so I think what, like, at the end of the day, you have to stand for something, right? And and I think where a lot of, you know, I can sort of go deep into what I think is wrong with architecture practice, but I'll say one thing, architecture and consulting are not the same thing. Um, and, and I think that architects who have become consultants have become really great at not taking a position at anything ever. And that's just not inspiring, right? It might be okay for business, um, but it's just not inspiring. And so I think talent is going to go where talent wants to go, especially in today's job market. And they're, what they're looking for is to be part of something that they believe in, that's representative of their values, if you will. And I'm sure Dave talked a lot about this. And I think that we work fairly early on tapped into this idea that like, you know, it's not something new that, our, that a lot of really great talent in architecture is a little bored. Um, and so we, we just sort of tapped into that and said, Hey, well, 
there's going to be a lot of things here, but boredom is not one of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so come on over. Um, and, and I think they were excited. They were excited that like next to them was a, a you know, mechanical engineer and across the table on the other side was a technologist and over on the other side was an acoustician and over on the other side was a construction manager, right? Like they never worked in a place like that. They worked in a place where you walk in and, you know, out of 198 people are architects. And so that's, that's not diverse. It's not in any way sort of like, you know, you're, 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 you're learning a craft, which is great, but it, but you're not seeing other perspectives. Um, and when you do get to see other perspectives, this is why you, you know, I, I like to say like you walk, you walk down the office and it's a big architecture day and everybody's in meetings because it's actually kind of nice to go see what other people think. <laughs> right? Like, like you want to go talk to these consultants. I mean, you're paying them money, which is kind of a, an odd thing. But like at the end of the day, it's like, I, I really do wonder what the structural engineer thinks about this or what the acquisition thinks about that because they see their world a little bit differently than you. Wouldn't it be wonderful for you to be able to work with those people next to you all the time? And so cross-functional teams were core to WeWork and they are not core to the way that architecture is practice and so i think that that just that was a completely like a completely different culture than what people were used to and so it was it was super dynamic um it was really diverse from the point of view of, of expertise and that was pretty amazing and then once that word started getting out right then you know we, we like to say at the beginning it's like it's like look our, our tactic initially because we when we started um, or when, you know, when we came over for the first time, I would say that talent acquisition was hard, right? Like nobody really knew what we work was, or if they knew they were like, what, like, you're going to go work for like this, like owner, like there's like, you know, this was a time when going to work for like the client side was like, was, was, was sacrilegious. You couldn't do that. Like, you know, you're selling yourself up. And so it, we had to reposition that storyline. Um, and I would always tell the stories. I was like, there was a time when like, if you were a, an amazing brand strategist, you would never go work at like, you know, uh, in-house at a brand. You want to work for one of the big five agencies. But then, like, you know, the Nikes of the world came through, and and like now you have like on the tech side, like the Airbnbs of the world came through, or the Figmas of the world come through. And like, what ends up what ends up happening is that being on the client side or being at the agency not only become comparable, but potentially in some brands, it actually even becomes better to be on the client side. And so like, what's the client side of architecture? What's the client side of interiors? And we were, became that. I mean, we used to say like, there was a there was a time when nobody knew Nike and now every industrial designer and brand strategist wants to be at Nike, wants to have Nike on their resume, right? And, and so can we do that for workplace design? Can we do that? You know, like there was, you know, if you had WeWork on your resume, we we dreamed of a moment where, and obviously the ending was very different from what we expected, but there, we, we, we tried to visualize a time when everybody would want somebody in their workplace team that had WeWork on their resume. Um, and so how do you make that happen? How do you design that culture? How do you design this idea? And, and you, you know, you have to make, you have to sort of make this happen. Um, and that includes giving people the room and the autonomy to be to be really truly creative and to and to sort of come together and to say like no no like what you do is actually really valuable what you do is going to you know change a lot of people's lives and so you give them the room for it you don't just say it's like okay to do this 20 percent of your time like no this is your core job 
now, you know, let's go do it and let's go build this amazing product and just make it better and better and better and better. And so I think that all of those things together created this environment that all of a sudden, you know, became became quite an attractive thing to to do. We we were also like paying better. Like let's just be super honest, right? Like our benefits were better and our pay was better than your typical firm. And we could afford to do that, not only because we are of course VC funded, but because because in the scheme of things, the salaries of 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 our team, you know, against a product that you're going to manage for 15 years was was nothing. Um, and so, you know, this this idea of what you know what would get outsourced, what wouldn't get outsourced, and all of that, it, it just became completely obvious. It's like, look, your product team has to be internal, and it makes complete sense because a few amazing product people can make a huge, huge impact. So yeah, so look, all of those things together you know, worked. And I think it's, and we didn't invent it, right? Like Starbucks did it in its time and its heyday and Disney did it before and McDonald's and like a bunch of people, you know, hospitality companies have had this model. We were just, I think the first to do it in workplace. Uh, a lot of people compared us to Regis, you know, with all due respect to Regis, like their product is terrible. And so like, you know, nobody wants to go work at Regis. So you bring all of those things together. Um, and all of a sudden, I think you be, you have the beginnings of, of something that can be pretty special. Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Cyber attacks are a growing challenge in the hybrid world, and they are costly. The firm leadership estimated that the pure financial cost of the business was just over 100K, not accounting for the tremendous mental pressure the team experienced during the attack and subsequent recovery. However, it's important to mention that proactive architecture firms can get ahead of these type of technology threats. As you consider your technology infrastructure needs for your business, be sure to check out ArcIT. They're a trusted IT provider who is in the business of helping architecture firms, and they offer tailored solutions for design studios, small, midsize, and large. ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. 
Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with practice disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to secure your endpoints, your Windows or Mac OS device with business grade antivirus, URL filtering solution, and OS Plus application patch management solution. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. I think what I most appreciate about the WeWork as a case study is that there was an attempt to really address the problems and to design solutions instead of like ignore the problems and hope they go away. <laughs> and so like I think everybody that I talk to that uh, has been on the show that spent time at WeWork talks a lot about um, the different ways that those problems were addressed from a business model standpoint. And so I really appreciate you talking about breaking away the barriers that uh, most often occur within a, you know, a, a typical team and firm structure. I think that cross team dynamic is really important as a, as a concept. And if anywhere. Like, I hope that on this show, you feel totally empowered to talk about the flaws of the industry of architecture because we're all about it. And so, um, you know, feel free to lean further <laughs> into that. I mean, look, I think that architectural practice, with, and I, I have like zero basis <laughs> in terms of research to back this up, but this is what it feels like to me. Um, and I left it fairly early in my career. So, what I would say is that architectural practice, that the, the, the framework works great up to a certain scale. It's a framework that I think is good for small firms. I think at a certain scale, you become inevitably a click farm, right? Like you're, you're hiring, you're, you're, you're sort of trying to acquire labor as cheaply as possible and repackage it and sell it for profit. Um, and, that, and that comes with some really, really difficult cultural problems um and 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 you're trying to and, and like look at the end of the day architects either sell compliance or they sell aspiration and if you sell aspiration like you have a tension there that that cannot easily be resolved like you can't sell the aspiration of a better world through how we have an impact on our built environment while at the same time having a business model that depends on you know trying to squeeze out as much as you can from employees and then you know and every architecture firm does this every 10 years or so you you know you you have you, you there's a lot of work you hire a lot of people then there's less work and so you fire them and then you have work and you have a lot of people and then there's less work and you hire them and so i you know there's people out there like phil bernstein who have studied this and are probably much more eloquent at talking about it than i have but but the the problem to me is not architecture in of itself is the vehicle the the business model of it is one model for it it can't be the only one Right, and so why can't we have other versions? Why can't we have other um, other ways of practicing? And and the reality is, and that's that when you really begin to sort of scratch on this, is that they, they do exist. There are other ways of being a designer out there in the spatial world. They're just not wrapped in this word architect. And so again, this is where like the freedom comes comes through. Like there's amazing interior design firms that do 
all kinds of work, which traditionally could be considered architecture, but like they don't use that word uh, and they, they charge better. <laughs> they, they have a better ability to, to collaborate and to hire different kinds of folks. They're, you know, not to say that interior design is, is better as a whole, but like it's, it's, they're definitely not bound in that, in that, in that sort of way. Um, there's plenty of interior designers out there who are also terrible, but, but you begin to see now. And I think that hopefully what we work did was to make it okay to not work just, you know, to not just be at a firm and that it's okay to go work at a, at a, at, on the, on the client side. It's okay to go work at a product company. It's okay to do these things. Not only is it okay, it's actually probably more fun. Uh, and then you got to the point, you know, or even very quickly over the arch of time there where like all of a sudden we started to get a ton of resumes, people from people who were just coming out of school because for them, you know, the FOMO of seeing all of their friends going to work at like, you know, Stripe and Slack or whatever, like, what am I going to do? Go work for like, you know, some 72 year old person who like, like it just doesn't even understand the world as it is today in the 21st century. And so it just like the, the lack of connectivity there or the, the lack of, of context in a lot of those companies and a lot of those firms was, was, was just so significant that you walked into them and it, it already felt, it already felt like dated. I mean, I, I would even, I, I won't say publicly, but I would even go as far as to say that the, even some of the younger generation that like, still got caught up in that sort of 20th century model, you walk into those companies today and they still feel dated, um, even though partnership isn't that, isn't that old, right? And so, you know, I think it's, I think it's a scaling problem. Uh, I really do. You know, I think boutique firms do awesome work. And I think that, you know, as long as they treat their employees and their customers have, like well, like that's, that's totally fine. But I think that when you go into the, tens and hundreds and even thousands of people, you have some real issues to, to have to try to work out because feeding that machine is not easy. And even with all of the best of intentions, it's a, you know, it's a hard thing to do. So either, you know, go into, uh, so like you have to go into parallel fields, you got to get into more strategy, you have to get into more technology. Like there are companies out there that are doing really amazing work there and to sort of like expanding their work into, into, into other fields so that so that the ebbs and flows of, of physical work aren't the only things that define them. But there's many who aren't. I think at the core of it all is just mostly a lack of creativity. It's like you, you've, you've been handed this manual, right? Like professional manual of what you're supposed to do and you don't even question it. You just kind of like go with it. Like, it's kind of crazy to me. Like you just, it's like, cool, but no, <laughs> like why? Why would we do this? I, this is probably why I, I don't know, I would never probably get invited to anything that has to do with AIA, but like, I don't think that like the effort that the whole industry puts on tradition is well-founded. I think actually is, is quite destructive. And I think that it requires a whole reconstruction and I hope that it happens at some point, but I'm certainly not gonna like wait around for it to happen myself. And I hope that people out there uh, don't either. Like, the world is wonderful and there's plenty of amazing places to, to go do work, including within firms, but it's not the only way. Like if you ever feel somehow or another you don't fit, you're right, you don't fit. So go somewhere else. It's not you, it's them, uh, 100%. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, we, this is obviously a conversation and we could go this direction um, for much longer. I, I, wanted, I do want to talk about Kanoa, but... You know, what's interesting to me is is that 
that tradition, I think, is somewhat is so tied to identity that what I feel a lot of architects even struggle with when they consider, do I stay in practice? Do I move away from practices? One, the you know tenuous path that they walked just to get to where they are. So heavens forbid they ever step off that path. But also like this idea of if I'm not an architect, then who am I? I think is something that architects or people even with an architectural background kind of begin to struggle with. Yeah, look, I I, I get it, but it's but it's it's also a way of keeping people in line, right? Like why why couldn't you be the chief product officer somewhere, right? Like lawyers don't stop being lawyers because they're the chief legal officer at a company. Like it's not even, it's not even a thought. It's kind of crazy to me. Like go be the chief product officer somewhere. Go, go be chief creative officer somewhere. Go like all of these roles and titles all exist. And, and actually they're becoming a lot more common chief architect, all of these things, um, are out there and they and they exist for good reason. I do think that this has to do with with the, I don't know. There's a for me it, it always felt a little bit Orwellian. Like there's this idea that like if you kind of like step out of line, you you've been you now shunned by everybody. It's like like why? Like I don't know. I I never finished passing my test, so I can't use that word. Um, I'm a designer, but if you did and you're an architect, like go do whatever you want. Like it's it's. To a degree, I think people people have been taught that if you know if you're not part of the pack, if you're not sort of following along, that in a way you're you're kind of leaving that tradition, and that's why I think it's 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 actually quite destructive. I think it's I don't think it's I don't think it's healthy. I think if anything, companies, the what I would love to see is a bunch of firms going out there and like severely increasing their diversity of different types of practitioners and not just professionals in their mindset but in in like different kinds of, of 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 fields of of design of project management of strategy of branding of all of these kinds of things and i think that any company that looks at it that way or go the AE route right and go with engineering like that's fine like but i think those companies probably have a um you know a better like we'll say we'll have a better culture we'll see i don't know i don't have the like i clearly don't have the solutions i also can't necessarily sort of put my finger on on the actual problem um other than you know from a business perspective other than just saying that like making people feel bad is certainly not productive and it's certainly not like healthy <laughs> it's like you know do what you need to do, um, support people the best you can. And if and if that means that they have to go elsewhere, then that means that they have to go elsewhere. I mean, how many how many conversations have we been on where like architects are complaining? It's like, oh, we take all this time to train them and then they leave. It's like, are you kidding me? Like you build all of those hours, like they've made you money. Like you don't own these, these people. Like it's it just do, you know, do what you need to and they will do what they need to. Like it's not, it's not some some like a lot of the language it's used is like really, really old school. And and what's worse is that you hear all the language even with younger practitioners because they had to pay their dues. So now they're making other people here. So the amount of gatekeeping in the industry is terrible. So I would say even more so than the than the actual sort of business vehicle, it's the culture. Like the culture is 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 quite toxic. And so they're gonna continue to have a brain drain for as long as that culture continues to be that way. Like it doesn't sound fun to go work at any of these companies. It sounds prestigious, but not fun. And at some point, that's going to come up. Uh, that's going to come up to them, and and 
you know, and I think it's already happening. The best talent coming out of school today, are they really going to like all of those names? Some are, some still are. But they're probably also going, you know, to like the latest like housing startup or the latest like whatever startup. Like why? Because their roommate is. <laughs> <laughs> and like if their roommate's getting like these things called options in a company, why can't I get options in a company? Like what's this partnership thing that I have to I have to pay into it? Are you kidding me? But they're getting it for free. <laughs> like as compensation. Like it it doesn't even like the even the methodology doesn't make sense. And so and so it's hard to compete with, you know, with that from a talent perspective today. I think you're hitting it spot on on so many different elements that we try to talk about on the show, but definitely this talent angle, I think that you're a hundred percent. And it's so funny to me that some people are just like scratching their heads going, where, where are all the architects? Where are all the designers that we need to be hiring right now? It's like, uh, you kind of chase them away over the last 10 years. But I want to dive into how all of these things that we've talked about up until this point have gotten you to this next step that you're in in your career. And I love it when one of our guests comes on the show and they have passions and values that overlap around the themes that we love. So yours hit into technology and climate, and you've created a company, uh, Kanoa. I'd love to know hear from your own words, like what is the company? What's the vision for it? But also, how do you define your career now, now that you're in this different role? Like, are you a technologist? Are you a designer? Are you a climate activist? Like, what do you, what do you see your role as? I'm not big on on labels. I do think that I, I consider myself a designer. I consider myself an environmentalist, for sure. I'm not sort of going out there and and like i i like i'd like to think that through our work um we can have an impact that i don't need to just go to like demonstrations all the time i i I think that the world needs to change through everyday action not not just through these sort of like specific points although that's important as well but it's not my thing we're a technology company that is trying to reinvent really the way that people design and shop for their offices and the way that they're managed, right? Like I, I still fundamentally completely in love with the workplace problem because it's such a difficult one. And, and so, you know, after leaving WeWork and taking some time and all of this stuff, I said, what do I, what do I want to do? And that complete messiness of humans and, and, and like, you know, our changing culture and need crashing into our existing cities and buildings just sounds completely wonderful to me, even though it's it's like a super messy world. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, let's build some technology that is like custom made specifically for this completely forgotten sector of the industry. You know, we, we like to say internally that, that um, you know, those of us who are in, in commercial interiors and interior design, we've had to borrow technology from ground up construction forever. Um, and it sucks, all of it. Um, it's just not good enough. Um, I used to, you know, hawk Revit everywhere with case as well. And we thought it was like the next great thing. And then before that, it was like, you know, with shop, it was Katia. And then, you know, of course, Rhino. And like, look, I'll be the first one. Actually, people... Even at, at, at Kanoa, I hate this for me. But like, I'll be the first, I'll, I'll adopt anything. Like, I, I'm the first one to sign up for every technology everywhere. Like, I just love everything. 
And and so that tinkering spirit is um, is certainly one that we have, and we had a case, and I think we we took that through with us at, at WeWork as well. But everything felt blunt. Everything felt too heavy um, for the problem set that we had that we were really trying to to work through with 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 Kanoa and with the workplace. Um, and it's the only reason why we ended up sort of with the with the product that we have, which is really just a really simple space planning tool with an embedded marketplace. It's it's all it is. Like imagine if you like number one, like really, do we need like all of these buttons and all of these tools? Like really, we don't. And so we like to say, we, you know, we just wanted to design an exacto knife in a world of like machetes and bazookas. Um, all of those tools are great; they just do way too much. Um, and two, it's like, why can I buy a car on my phone, but I like, but getting a chair for like, you know, ten people on my team is a six-month ordeal being able to bring these sort of e-commerce type solutions and workflows into into these companies is a, is a is a big part of it and all of it being driven by the by the simple fact that when you're operating space not designing sort of big fancy new ones but when you're operating space the cycle of feedback redesign implement feedback redesign implement is really tight and it's really fast um, and so the reason why we love, you know, FFNE and we love prefab and we love all these modular components and we think it's really the way to go is because it's fast and because it responds to the end user's needs. It's not something that is hypothetical about some future that's going to be amazing. And I'm sure it will be amazing, but it will be wrong. And so I'd rather be right and nearsighted than wrong and farsighted, right? Like I'd rather... I'd rather, you know, you could walk into an amazing space that we're like, yeah, I wish we wouldn't have made that decision. How many times have we said that, right? And so, it, like, the reality is that all of them, right? I, I, we had full teams that we work at some point when we were like really at mega growth that were knocking as much down, as much stuff down as they were putting up because the needs of of our customers, of our actual users, were changing every day. Um, and and even and now with hybrid, it's that's exponential. And so. The whole concept behind Kanoa is that the needs of the workplace are such now that um, design and deployments have to go hand in hand, um, and that we we have to make these spaces much more much more responsive than they used to be. And so and so, why can't every company just have like their own um, store, virtual store, curated store that they go into and they buy all this stuff and they, they manage what they need to and all that stuff. Like that's, that's really a vision and we need to track all of it because also when you're done with it, we can't just throw it out either. Right. And so it has to be this sort of ongoing relationship, um, with, with the cut between us and the customer, but really ultimate with the customer and their, and their end users. You want to be sort of tied together as, as closely as possible. It's a big vision from the perspective that we know that, um, you know, there's billions of square feet of this stuff out there in the world. Who knows what's going to happen to a lot of it over the next 10 years? What we do know is that all of it is going to change. And so we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what that gigantic problem set. But I can tell you one thing, like hawking gypsum board is not going to be one of them, right? And that's, you know, what a lot of architects end up doing. It's like you can't tie all of your fees to just how much, you know, of the stuff you sell out into the world, like the, the stuff is going to end up in landfills. Uh, we know that all this stuff is going to change. And so we see a world where uh, workplace behaves more like retail, behaves more like other parallel space types that are just much more flexible, right? Like retail reconfigures almost seasonally sometimes, right? Like Macy's does five reconfigurations a year and workplace doesn't. 
really it should. And why doesn't it? Because we continue to design it and build it the way that we used to. And so I, I, I think the product market fit of the way that the office was designed is now gone. And we are beginning to find, try to find what the new one may be. Nobody has the answer yet, but we know it's not what it used to be. Um, and so what we tell customers, we have a gigantic opportunity to leap forward with hybrid towards something that is much lower carbon, much lighter on the planet, much more flexible, much higher degrees of, of, of engagement because you're going to do it faster. You're going to get to iteration six or seven by the time that the other way would have gotten you the first iteration, right? And so speed and feedback and learning and all of these things that we talk about all the time become sort of crunched together. And so Panoa sits right at that nexus of all of these things coming together. At the end of the day, our business model is really simple. We, you know, we sell stuff, we sell all of these objects and products, um, but we, but we, and you know, we help you track them and all that stuff. Um, but we want to make it fun. We want to like, why can't I, why can't I have an amazing, you know, little design tool where I can just like right click and buy the stuff and, 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 you know, and why can't somebody just magically fulfill those orders on the backside without me having to really worry too much about it. And so we do see a world we, I, we, we, this is the probably our biggest kind of swing. Um, and this is where, you know, uh, you know, we'll see how, how this all goes, but we do see a world where this sort of separation between, you know, design and the end user and like all of these steps between like, you know, procurement and all these kinds of things just have to get so much tighter, so much tighter that the way in which we do them today just, just simply won't work for a vast majority of the market. It'll continue to work for some of it. Um, for the like mega projects and all those kinds of things that, you know, architects sort of love to chase, that's great. But, but a vast proportion of the industry won't use that, right? Like, you know, the average lease in the U.S. is 7,500 square feet. It's not 75,000 or 7 million, it's 7,500, right? And so a lot of this work today happens sort of in the ether. I don't really know how, and you'll see. But it's, 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 um, it's a problem we love, and it's, you know, a problem that today has been put front and center in the conversation at every company's boardroom. Um, you know, we'd like to say like workplace teams are the sort of un, between them and HR, they're the unsung heroes of, of the pandemic. Like they've all been thrust into such strategic positions that, you know, with, without much help, to be frank. And now all of this stuff, all of these decisions have to be made. And the, and the companies we love to work with are the ones that see their spaces as a fundamental uh, part of their strategy for talent acquisition and talent retention, and as as a way, and and, and from a brand perspective, as sort of representational into where does it fit into their ESG goals, and where does it fit into like their you know their their storyline with the planet and and their impact on it. And so, if your company doesn't sort of think about those things, then we're probably not right for you. But the ones that are, the ones that are going in that direction we all know what this problem is. We all know that it's difficult. Um, and we all know that we need sort of different ways, you know, we, we need to leap forward. And so we want to work with those folks. So that's where we are and, and, and that's what we're doing. And yeah, and sort of unapologetically, you know, we love it. So. <laughs> you know, I, the interesting thing is you talk about these over-robust tools, you know, and, and you being this exacto knife in, in the tool set. But you're also putting into the hands of, you know, people, <laughs> I, I kind of laugh at all of the designs that I've gotten from people that have literally like office layouts, especially when I work for commercial brokerage that people laid out in Excel. So now 
And I don't know how they did that. I mean, good for them for figuring out how to like lay things out on Excel is beyond me. But now you're placing in the hands of these individuals a much more powerful tool. So what does Kanoa mean for, for architects? Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? What should the boutique practicing architect be thinking about Kanoa? Do I need to be following what you guys are doing and decide, am I going to be a partner with those guys or how are we going to compete? I'll start with the, the first part of that question, which is, or not really a question, but statements. Um, we, we fundamentally believe in that design should be much more inclusive than it is. I think this sort of like, again, this back to this sort of gatekeeping that like, I have this knowledge and only I have it. And that's why you have to pay $650 an hour for it is the wrong way to look at our industry. We need to be much more open and inclusive and affordable. And so we do see Kanoa much more in the vein of something like a Squarespace or Webflow or these kinds of tools, which also in their own industries initially were feared, but now they're like, oh yeah, you know, like, why can't I just make my own website? Like, do I really? <laughs> and so, and so um, we're not there yet, of course, but a part of our mission and, and part of, and part of the genesis of all of this stuff is to say, we need to give more people access to, to changing their own immediate physical environments. Um, and how do we do that? safely how do we do that like in a really fun way um and so our tools is just you know this drag and drop interface specifically for that i think from from that side you know we definitely want to engage a wider audience than just sort of experts that said the experts themselves i would say you know we 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 partner with designers mostly we partner with sort of you know workplace designers and interior designers less so architects although you know, many architects actually do sort of workplace design and would be happy to, to partner with them. We even have an affiliate program where we pay these people, we bring them work, right? Because not every one of our customers wants to use what's sort of out of the box. They want something a little bit more like glove. They want something. And so we, we have an affiliate program that, um, uh, you know, where we bring these companies business as long as, as long as we have what I would say, um, a similar mindset when it comes to to the world of sustainability and the types of vendors and suppliers that we want to use and those kinds of things. But other than that, you know, design what you will. So I'd say for 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 those companies, we are definitely a partner. We're definitely competitive with the mega firm, mostly because we believe that it's just not the right vehicle for this type of stuff. You'll just be able to, well, like Canoe will just be cheaper and faster. And so if you if you're out there sort of hawking like 18 months delivery projects and like, you know, traditional SDDD, CD uh, programs, and then CA and everything is like these, you know, gigantic fees. Eh. Um, I think for a lot of customers and workplace that might still be okay. But I think culturally more 21st century type businesses just won't operate that way any longer because just the risk is too high. Like really, are you going to, are you ready to make decisions that are three years out today? No. Like people are happy to make six month decisions, maybe even 12 month decisions, but certainly not decisions about, you know, constructing something that we think will maybe last seven to 10 years when we know it won't. When a company's offices is, is, is you know, which, which is certainly the case with a lot of tech companies and, and sort of knowledge workers is such a significant part of their carbon footprint. You can't make those decisions anymore. You can't make a decision to, you know, to, to like, you know, the core and shell is one thing, but the interior is like, like build a theater, like really like build a, <laughs> build like, build nothing effectively. Just give me, you know, big open um, bays 
of of room, give me a ton of natural light, and give me you know healthy ceiling you know floor to ceiling heights. That's really all that workplace wants. And then inside of that, we'll figure it out. Um, um, and that you know, and and, and architects, uh, I think traditionally, just just don't necessarily know how to work into that mold. If you're like the mega firm, I think I think smaller firms totally get it. So we love working with smaller firms who are younger. I would say if you started in the last 10 years and you're less than 20 people, you're probably our best partner and we will, and we will bring you work, you know, so reach out to us. If you're a couple thousand people and you're a hundred years old, you know, maybe, maybe look the other way for a while. You talked a lot about company culture and the, the toxic culture that kind of is a part of architecture firms. And this is not, Kanoa is not the first company that you've built. So have you taken the same exacto knife approach to, to how you want to carve out the, the company culture in Kanoa? Or, or what is your approach to creating company culture at this point? I think it all starts with having with taking a stance. I think Kanoa takes a big stance in the world. And so off the bat, it sort of attracts a kind of particular type of human, I think. If you have something like that to stand on, then everything else downstream from that is a little bit... Um, call it easier but it's it's simpler i'd love to say that you know uh, you know we're, we're tiny um and so co- company culture um especially in a fully remote world which is the world we're living in today you know i'd say the experience is quite different from from what it was at case canoa was started like two months two three months before the pandemic hit widely um so like a lot of our decisions, um, you know, are very much sort of born out of the pandemic. Like a lot of where we are today come out of this period. And so we consider ourselves fully a post-pandemic type of company because we probably would have made quite very different decisions had this not happened, including, you know, who our, who our customers are. Um, at the beginning, our customers, our idea was to really go after the small business sector. And we ended up having to go completely pivot and to go up up market into enterprise because the small business world just completely went away when it came to office space. And so, you know, and that was effectively supplanted by work from home now, which is a whole other now industry that exists uh, to support that. But it's, you know, we're a little bit of an older company from, from, in terms of like demographics, right? Like I'm, I, I would say that like, you know, case was a bunch of 20 some year olds. Kanoa is not that <laughs> like, it's like a lot of us have worked together before we've known each other for some time. So we're, we're a little bit later in our career. Um, it's a very small company. We're only 10 people. Everyone comes with a high degree of experience today. Um, and so we took a little bit of a different approach to typical startup. Although I think a lot of startup people love this idea of like, oh, you just want, you know, you want a lot of hustlers. You want a lot of these people, like, you know, people that don't sleep and work weekends. We are not that at all. Like we have super healthy benefits. We pay really well. <laughs> we don't work on weekends. I don't work on weekends. Um, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's a startup company for sure. And so like our growth objectives are significant, but we, but we're trying to build something that lasts for a long time. Um, and we're trying to, you know, build something that will still be there when our customers need us to be there 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And so our goal is to build something that is that is founded on healthy practices because we know that that's the only way that we're going to survive. And and we have the experience of WeWork, which was not founded on healthy practices, and that did not survive, right? And so our only data point clearly shows us that you have to do it in a different way. Otherwise, it's not going to work. You might be able to get out of the gate. You might be able to like 
grow really fast, you might be able to do all these things, but if you don't sort of work towards some sort of, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not founded upon something that's really solid, then it's going to be really hard for you to maintain that, that, that growth rate and that scalability. We are unapologetic about the fact that we want to be a very, very significant company. We want to, we are building what I would call like the first post-pandemic design brand in America. We want to be something that in like in this century is really representative and we're going after it like full blown. And we're starting with the workplace because that's where like we love because we love that problem set. We're not going to be a small company. We're certainly not boutique. We are, you know, we have aspirations and we have investments and we do have VC backing and all those kinds of things. But we, but, you know, but we're, we're trying to do it our way. We'll see if we make it or not. But I tell you this, uh, internally, we, we basically have two outcomes. Either we're going to be a giant, amazing, wonderful company, or we're going to completely not exist. Um, there's no in between because we're not here to shoot for the middle. We're going to you know, shoot for big. We're going to shoot for awesome and amazing. Uh, and, and then we're going to be proud that we tried, even if it doesn't work. What we cannot do is walk away and sort of like have this, this itching feeling in the back of our mind that we didn't, you know, we didn't try to go after like the big pot. And we want to. If Florence Noel was starting her company today, um, she would have a software component. Why does every company that have anything to do with the workplace today feel like they're a hundred year old company? It's because most of them are. <laughs> and so, you know, demographically speaking, we we saw that there's a big opportunity here for us to to just represent different type of culture and demographic in the way that we do things. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarkit.com slash PD to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.